Greetings in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks to be united in our confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says it well from Romans 15, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We seek this harmony here on Concord Matters by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord, because we do believe that they are in accord with God's holy word. The only reason we have Concord Matters is because it aligns with scripture. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We continue our study of Holy Baptism and Luther's Small Catechism with the next question, the third part, how can water do such great things? It really comes down, I mean, it's, it's a question that they've been asking, well, forever, but it is, it is something that is being asked, how is that possible? And that's something we will dig in today. The question for us along with that is, are we going to believe in God's word or our own reason? Are we going to let God's word form us or do we want God's word to form to what we want. And this is something very important for all of us. So I encourage you to really pay attention to what Holy Scripture has to say. Dust off your little catechism, open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the small catechism, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Reminder to our listeners, too, is that as we get to the end of Holy Baptism, which will be in two weeks, that is a special program that we'll have to study with Pastor Dennis McFadden, who grew up Baptist, actually was Baptist majority of his life, who became a Lutheran. And one of the main reasons was because of what the, the, the scriptures say about baptism and what the Lutherans confessed according to God's word. He'll be going through all the questions that you can imagine. So if you have any questions concerning that, send them in. We're going to be trying to address every single question that is out there about baptism and letting God's word speak. So join us two weeks as we look once again at all the questions about holy baptism. But today, joining us in the confession of Christ, we welcome back Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, welcome back to Concord Matters. Oh, it's great to be here. Pastor, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you. You've been on quite a bit here. We're very blessed to have you on. So I just wanted to make sure that that not only do I thank you, but that everyone out there knows how much we appreciate uh, your work and appreciate all that you're doing for us here in KFUO. So I just wanted to make that a public uh, a public notice of, of thanks for all that you do, especially as you transition to a new congregation. So thanks be to God. Thank you for your, your help here on KFUO. Well, you are most welcome. It is a joy and a privilege. <laughs> Great. So let's get to let's get right to it. Baptism. Um, now, now we get to the how. So I want to read this and ask a very simple, even a more simple question. Hey Brady, after we Brady, could we read the question, stop for a second. Yeah, yeah. Could we just stop right there? Are my 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 uh, levels? Is the mic going right? Because it just seems like my levels are very low compared to your levels below mine on the screen. Uh, no, it looks good on my end. Okay, good. All right. Sorry. Yep. I don't know. You I just have to flag this as a splice or something. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, we're good. No, 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 no. You, we're you good. can go I back all and, the time. and fix that. Okay. All right. Sorry. I just, no. I just want it. Cause I'm looking at the difference going, man, my levels seem really low, but okay, good. No, Excellent. Uh, not on my end. It shows good. that it's good. We're about the same. Good. So 
No, do that anytime. If you have to stop, that's not an issue whatsoever. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So remember, okay. we stopped so a little gonna... bit before four. So yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I got that written down. Here All we right. go. So pastor, let's get into the third part. Let's just dig right into the small catechism. How, oh, so excuse me, for, for our listeners, we'll be confessing from Luther's small catechism with explanation. And this is a 2017 version of the small catechism from CPH. And we are on page 24, the third part of holy baptism. The question is this, how can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things. Along with the faith, which trusts this word of God in the water, for without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is baptism. That is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit. As St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through our Lord Jesus, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying from Titus chapter three, verses five through eight. Now, pastor says, how can water do such great things? But it, it's even more simple than that, I, than, than that, I believe, where it is, how can this be? Where do you want to start? Well, I, I think we should just understand that flow of questions that uh, Luther has here for both the sacrament of holy baptism and the sacrament of the altar. It's the same kind of a flowing a logic here, this logical progression uh, of how you're going to ask, ask these questions. What is baptism? So what is the sacrament? What benefits does baptism give? Well, what's the benefit of this sacrament? Same thing with the sacrament of the altar. And then you get to the third question, it's going to be how? How is this possible? How can this happen? How can an ordinary thing like water or bread and wine or eating, uh, how drinking, how can this do such great things? So watch this progression of what Luther's doing as he's trying to teach us, he's trying to catechize us with God's word. Always starting with the institution, giving us that benefit of what it's doing, and then addressing the issue of what it means to believe. Because, it, of course, at the time of Luther and the, the rise of the Anabaptists, I mean, the Anabaptists are uh, using this earthly logic. They're trying to let reason override and overwrite the scriptures itself because they will say, according to the sacraments, starting with the Lord's Supper, how can it be the very body and blood of Jesus? Or in baptism, how can uh, water do such great things? Because it's just plain water. And so this is really the question that Luther is addressing because there are those who are letting reason and logic overrule what the scripture says. You know, as you had just said, that uh, when we come to the text, we want the text to change our minds and our hearts, not our minds to change the text to fit what we want it to say. And so when we talk about logic and reason, there, there's a gift from God. God gives us the gift of logic and reason. That's why Luther is putting this into a logical ordering, a sequence of questions. That's the proper use of logic, a ministerial use of logic to help serve the, the scripture, using that God-given logic and reason to understand this grammatical text that God gives to us in our own language so that we can begin to learn to believe what God promises in his word. Now, that's the proper use of logic and reason when it comes to scripture. 
when it becomes improper, and this is where Luther will make these comments about a reason being the devil's whore, is that when you try to use this reason in a magisterial use, you're trying to use it in a ruling and reigning use over the scripture itself. So you come to the text with your reason first and say, well, it's impossible for water to do that. It's impossible for eating bread and wine to do that. And now you're coming to the scripture with your reason instead of coming to the scripture to receive the gift of grace and the gift of faith. And so when the Anabaptists are arguing with Luther, what they're telling Luther is they're saying, hey, Luther, you're the one who told us we are justified through faith alone, and therefore, if it's faith alone, they are improperly using their logic and saying it must be faith apart from anything like baptism, which they are claiming is a work of man, or the Lord's Supper, which they are claiming is a work of man. So the whole question here is, is the sacrament a work that we do to prove to God that we are committed to him in baptism, that we actually believe? Because that's the, that's the direction that reason takes you, is that a sacrament is there for the reason of making a public commitment to others and to Jesus that you actually believe what Jesus says. Now, we don't need to give Jesus this, this commitment in baptism as a work that we do to prove that we actually believe. Faith itself is a gift. Jesus is the one who gives us the gift of faith. And so in baptism, it's not our work. It's God's work. And so that's why the previous question is, what's the benefit? Well, God is working in baptism. God does this, that it's in baptism that God works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe. But we want to always understand what it means to be justified through faith alone. And so when we look at baptism, we look at baptism as the sacrament of justification. This is where we have that promise given to us, where we have the name of God and the promised presence of God claiming us and naming us to be his, with his word. It is the word that does these great things because the word is efficacious. It actually affects these things. It does something. It impacts the, the very being of who we are by giving us faith, by taking us and making us his own children by adoption. So he's adopting us by grace to be heirs of the kingdom. So this is not our work. It's God's work. So we always going to be clear that this is this eschatological uh, thing that's happening where God is giving us the kingdom and we have that promise now, but yet it's, it's not made manifest until that last day. So we have the reality now, but we don't see it. Uh, so we're waiting and anticipating in that resurrection of the body when we can actually see this participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. So I, I think that when we look at the how, this is where Luther has to address this to properly teach what it means to be justified through faith alone. In order to be justified through faith alone, you have to have a promise. Faith clings to a promise, and God gives us these promises in baptism. Uh, just like uh, before, what Luther was uh, going after is this whole understanding of the, the, the place where baptism is instituted. I mean, that was the first question. And then now, right before that, it's going to be that second question of what's the benefit? Well, the one who believes and baptized will be saved. I mean, that's the text from uh, Mark chapter 16. And so he's building upon the promise because faith clings to the promise. Faith is not an abstract thing that you just say, believe, and then you're saved. 
you have to have a promise of salvation in the Word. So in baptism, we have that word given to us, and we have the promises tied to the act of God who is working these great things, working salvation in us, giving us the forgiveness of sins, life eternal, uh, adopting us to be children. So this is God's work. So we want to be clear that this is a sacrament of justification. And so justification does not mean just believing in an abstract thing or just the concept of faith, but instead you have to have a promise, and God connects all these promises to baptism. So when we look at this argument, it, it definitely getting to that how, you've em emphasized this as Pastor McFadden and Pastor Crown have done so beautifully, that idea of the, 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 the truth, excuse me, that it is God's work, not our own, that it is uh, that it is God coming to us and not our own, but in our culture, and this is something I want to ask you on how you'd address this, is our culture is like, nope, that's work because that pastor had to put his hand in the water and it had to go upon that person's head, and therefore it's a work. And so how would you address someone who is like, no, 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 you're wrong. It's a work. What would you say? Well, I mean, first of all, it's very easy to address this with baptism because baptism is not something you do to yourself. So baptism itself is, is a sacrament that is done to you. So you go and the, pas the pastor mm. baptizes you. So you receive this gift. You receive an action done to you. So I think you can clearly see a distinction between something that you do. And I mean, if this is where you run into the problem with using logic and reason in a magisterial way, trying to reign and rule over the text, trying to ask these questions where you don't want the answers from God's Word, you want the answers outside of God's Word. So instead of going to the text and saying, what does this text teach me? You're going outside the text and saying, well, what about this? What if I walk to church? Is that a work? What if I open my eyes? Is that a work? What if I open my uh, ears to hear? Is that a work? If I uh, hold the Bible in my hand, is that a work? I mean, now you're, you're not even talking about the scripture anymore. You're just talking about philosophical concepts and arguments because you want to make the scripture make sense to your whole view on how works work. But we need to look at the text and understand that in baptism, you are baptized. So you don't baptize yourself. You are baptized. And so the pastor will stand up and he will take the first person is speaking that voice of God saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So the pastor is the mouthpiece through which you can hear the Word of God. I mean, in a very similar way, you have that in the Lord's Supper, when the pastor is the mouthpiece of, of Jesus, who says, this is my body given for you. So the pastor's not saying, this is my body, you know, Brian Katchelmeyer's body given for you. No, I, I'm speaking in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ to say these words that are his words. This is my body given for you. So this is why the pastor says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do the same thing with holy absolution in the liturgical life of the, the corporate church when we gather, and the pastor stands and says, in the stead and by the command of my Lord, that you know, as a servant of the word, I forgive you all of your sins in the name. So it's not me in the name of Brian, I forgive you, but I forgive you in the name of God. God is the one who is doing the work, not the pastor, not the person, but we are recipients of these good gifts, these good, good gifts of grace and mercy and forgiveness. As we look at what 
baptism is, we always want to back it up with scripture. So, so far we've talked about Romans 6, um, we've talked about Mark 16, um, today we have Titus chapter 3, but there's other passages that connects us um, to this, uh, how can water do such great things? And Pastor, why don't you break that down for us a little bit, Titus and other passages that you see, see to be part of this. Well, see, so we want to directly start with Titus because that's the passage, this foundational passage that Luther is giving to us so that we can meditate and contemplate on what the Holy Spirit is teaching us with his word, uh, that he is is using the word of the gospel to reconvert us over and over again, to give us the gift of faith, to fortify faith within us. And so notice the, the passage that Luther chooses here to use in contradistinction to this whole idea of, well, if it's faith alone uh, and baptism is then a work, well, notice he starts off and he says in verse 5 of Titus, he saved us. So this is his work. He saved us. And you clarify by saying, not because of works done by us in righteousness. I mean, so it's clarifying that this is his work. He's the one who's bringing salvation. It's not my work. I'm the recipient of this gift of salvation and participation in this whole eschatological goal uh, of the new heavens and the new earth. And so it is not because of works done by us in righteousness, but on the contrary, it's according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration. And so here you're using this understanding of washing. It's not just a symbolic act of nothingness. This is a washing of renewal, regeneration. You've got washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is here regenerating us. You know, the idea of a, a generation, like going back to Genesis, you have that first generation, and now we are being regenerated. It's a new start. It's a renewal that the Holy Spirit is working with the water. So you have this direct connection between washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, uh, just like Jesus would talk about in John chapter 3 uh, about being born of water and the Spirit. So here the Holy Spirit is doing the action. The Holy Spirit is renewing. The Holy Spirit is the one who is enlivening us, making us alive. And so that's why Luther will say it's not just plain water. I mean, if you didn't have the, the work of the Holy Spirit, if you didn't have the Word of God, it would be just plain water. It would be water coming out of the, the faucet or the tap or the drinking fountain. It would just be water. But instead, it is water with this word, the word that the Holy Spirit inspired, the word that the Holy Spirit continues to work with, the word that is efficacious. And so it's the Holy Spirit who is renewing us. But notice how it's directly connected to the work of the Holy Spirit, but also about Jesus, so whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So now if we look at this in a, a full Trinitarian understanding, it, when we started off the verse that he saved us, we're talking about the Father. The Father saved us. And then you have this renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So you have the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. This is the, the one in whom we are baptized into, the name of the triune God. And notice that you take this connection then from it's not of works done by us to verse 7, where you go on to say, so that being justified by his grace. So again, this is God's gift. It's God's free gift. It's something that God does, and we are recipients of it. So this is why we would see this as the sacrament of justification. We have that promise that is now given to us individually, incorporating us into the body of Christ, both into his uh, uh, 
death and burial and resurrection and ascension, and also into this mystical body of Christ, the church. So this is the work of Jesus. So it's through Jesus Christ, our Savior, we've been justified. So that's that, uh, to be justified is not just the idea of being justified by faith alone without a promise. I mean, that that's basically what these Anabaptists are saying. They're misunderstanding Luther. So you can't have justification through faith alone without the promise of God, without the work of God, without the salvation of God, without the Holy Spirit, without the Son, without the Father. You can't have that. That's that's not really justification through faith alone. So what they're doing is they're, they're playing these mental gymnastics, these philosophical concepts and reasoning and rationalizing apart from the Scripture itself. And they just look at water and say, hey, that doesn't make sense. That's just plain water. And you baptize somebody and you look and you say, hey, it doesn't look like anything changed or anything happened. I mean, there wasn't nothing magical there. I mean, same thing with the Lord's Supper. That just looks like bread and wine, or as our modern-day Baptist would do is grape juice, right? Or crackers or whatever. But but it's just you're only using your reason and you're looking at the earthly element. And you just see that earthly element and saying, yeah, that's impossible that water does that. And as Lutherans, we say, we know it's impossible that water does that. That's the whole point. It's God's word with the water that does this great thing, that the Holy Spirit is the one who enlivens. So that's why Luther can say that it is a life-giving water. It's not just plain water. It's a life-giving water because the Holy Holy Spirit is the one who makes us alive, and he's working there, which of course takes us all the way back to creation itself, where in the beginning you have all three persons of the Blessed Holy Trinity actively involved in creation. You have the Father who is speaking, the Son who is the spoken word that is bringing everything into existence, and what is the Holy Spirit doing? Hovering over the waters. I mean, so when we talk about that first creation and the Holy Spirit working in this, bringing life where there was none, in hovering over the waters, now in the waters of holy baptism, he is there working in us, doing something, renewing us, regenerating us. I mean, so when you go all the way back to the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, what do you see in the baptism of Jesus? You see the Trinity. This is uh, when we we have the, the Holy Trinity revealed to us in this, uh, the vision, if you will. So what do you see? You see the vision that the prophets and the apostles see, which is you see the true God. You see Jesus. Jesus, the one who took upon flesh and blood, who is standing in the Jordan. You hear the voice of the Father from the heaven, but you don't see the Father, but you hear his voice saying, listen to him, my son, my beloved one. And then you see at the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove, that this is taking us to this whole renewal and what God does in water, taking us all the way back to Noah and the flood, when with water he saved eight by water back in those days. And you had the dove there, of course, showing that now there's peace and there's life again and a new creation, a new start, which pictures the incarnation of what Jesus would do on the last day. And so all of that is tied together with this Trinitarian work of God and with water. And when you look through the whole scripture itself, when God created Adam, God, he formed, he formed Adam from the dust of the ground. Now, we know that the dust of the ground cannot produce a man. I mean, it doesn't happen, but God does that. This God brings life out of the dust of the ground. And then, of course, how does God create 
Eve, the woman, he builds Eve from the side of a man. Now, we know that a rib can't just naturally by itself produce a woman. We know that that doesn't happen. But this is what God does. God's been doing this from the beginning of creation, that he loves his creation, he is the creator, and he uses his creation to do these wonderful things. He uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary, the extraordinary. I mean, even the fact that when Adam and Eve uh, come together in union and they reproduce and bring forth life, God is using that instrumental means of humanity to bring forth life between that union of a man and a woman. So God, God does this all the time with using these earthly elements. I mean, the whole Old Testament is just filled with the, these accounts of this. I mean, like uh, when Naaman was healed of his leprosy in the waters of the Jordan River, we all know that the Jordan River does not heal from leprosy, just like Naaman knew that. He goes, why would I wash in this water here in the Jordan River? I've got water back home that's cleaner. I mean, if I want clean water to purify my uh, skin, I'd go to a different water. But yet it was that water used with the word of the prophet that does these great things. And so you see this over and over and again. I mean, just like the bronze serpent, when Moses sets up the bronze serpent, we know that a bronze serpent does not heal from a venomous, poisonous snake bite. We know that. But yet God gave that word to Moses that you set this bronze serpent up and the one who is bitten, even though he's bitten by the snake, he looks upon this, he will not die because he's believing that promise that's now attached to that earthly element, that bronze serpent. I mean, and you go over and over again, this is the way that God interacts in his creation, in salvation history throughout the Old Testament. So, uh, of course, all of this is pointed to God using these instrumental means of, this, of the elements of water and bread and wine and this sacramental union to, to bring these great things about. And that, that's going to be the issue at hand here, where Luther is arguing this case with these Anabaptists or with Zwingli, who are trying to you know focus on the use of reason so that it overrides what the scripture says, or uh, with, with Calvinism. It's always with Calvinism, you want to start first with the logic, and you want the logic to make things make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, then you say it can't be that way. It can't be that the body of Jesus is given in with and under the sacrament of the altar, under the bread, under the wine, that his blood is there. It's just not possible. But th that's the whole point. Th that's what a miracle is. I mean, none of this is possible. It's not possible for us to believe, but God gives us the miracle in the gift of faith. I love the focus on the promise because in our culture, we often will see signs that say, faith. Like, I have faith. The problem is faith has to have a promise connected to it. You know, there has to be something that says, I have faith in whatever it might be, a doctor or a sports team or my spouse or a friend or this building or this pilot when I'm flying, whatever it is. I have faith. The question is, what do you have faith in? And here in the waters of baptism, God has given us not only a tangible you know, element there for us to to see it, to to feel it, to be able to touch it. I suppose if you can use it, use that language, that that he gives us that. But the promise behind it is this washing of rebirth, of inheritance, uh, generously given to us through Jesus Christ. That faith is in Christ, and he gives us this gift in order to be connected to him. If I can say it that way, how can this be? Well. 
how could woman be made? How could man be made? How could how could they walk across the Red Sea? You know, he used physical things to get the job done. And he just happened to use water to be baptized into Christ. All of that just reminds me so much. It's like a shoe that you have the other shoe needs to drop. And you're like, well, I have to have faith. In Jesus, and like, but, but baptism doesn't do anything. And you're like, come on, you're just, you're so close. <laughs> it's right there. The promise is there for you. And that's what he gave it to us as a gift. Pastor, we have about a minute left. Last thoughts before we uh, get to our break. Well, I always, I always think it's funny when we get into professional sports teams, whether it's football or baseball, postseason, playoff season, you always have the fans in the crowd holding the sign, believe. You know, It's like, <laughs> if, if we just all join hands and believe our team is going to win, that team will win the World Series or the Super Bowl or whatever championship it may be. But you've seen those, right? The signs in the crowd, believe. It's just the concept of believing. You know, it's the concept of you just got to have faith. You just got to have hope. Well, it, the Christian faith and the Christian hope are not abstract. The Christian faith and hope is always connected to the promises of God that are connected to the incarnation. So it's not even just a, a vague promise. It's a promise attached to the person and work of Christ, the one who was promised from the beginning, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Well, let's get to our break. Uh, we are studying Holy Baptism and Luther's Small Catechism with Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer, and we'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And welcome back. We are studying Holy Baptism. How can water do such great things from Luther's Small Catechism with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Now, Pastor, there's a many different directions we can go with this. And I encourage our listeners that as we've been referencing Holy Scripture, we've been looking at Titus chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, Previous books, uh, previous uh, sections or studies we've had is Mark 16. We've talked a lot about Romans 6. Uh, Pastor Crown spoke about Colossians 2. And then clearly we're institution at the Great Commission of Jesus in Matthew 28. Now, Pastor, connecting all those is always a key thing. And you've been pointing us to them very uh, to in a, in a faithful and wonderful way. Any other parts of Scripture you want to reference us as we move forward? Well, let's just look at the context of Titus chapter 3, because remember the question that Luther's really addressing here is, this, how is this possible to have justification through faith alone, but then have an earthly element that uh, doesn't seem to uh, be able to do such things? It's like, that's exactly what 
justification through faith alone is all about. It's about believing the work of God, the personal work of Christ, the word of God that promises these things to us. And so you look at the context of Titus chapter three, where here you have the apostle Paul teaching the successors of the apostles, those men who would be placed into this preaching office from age to age to age down to our age, where we are placed right now. And and notice that in this context, again, you have the contrast between God's work of saving us It's not our work done by us in righteousness, but it's totally the mercy of God, the washing and the renewal and the uh, regeneration by God. It's all him. He's the one who justifies. He's the one who does all of this. But notice that in the context, if you kept going down a couple of verses, you know, it says this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, Okay, this is our justification. We're trusting in this promise of God fulfilled in Jesus, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. <laughs> I mean, so there's where your works are. Your work's not in baptism. You're gonna, you, you are now claimed and named by God. You are part of the family. And so as a adopted children by grace, you are growing up into this life the life of being uh, an heir of the kingdom of God. So you are beginning to act in newness of life. The Holy Spirit is working to give you these new desires, these new impulses, new thoughts, new words, new deeds. So be careful to devote yourselves to good works. And these things are excellent and profitable for people. I mean, that's where your good works are. And if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, chapter three at verse one, notice that he, he starts up by saying to Titus, uh, remind them to be subordinate to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's sandwiched between this understanding of doing good works for the benefit of others, the benefit of the neighbor. And so he goes on and says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, and this is the but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So this is this new identity that we have, the old Adam, the old way of rebelling against the creator, uh, being in animosity with him, not loving God as we should, and the old way of not loving our neighbor as we should. Now we are being renewed and we're put into these vocations and these callings in life where we can be of benefit to others. And so notice in the context here, he's talking about being subordinate in this ordering of God to the ruling or the governing authorities in the political realm of this earth, because they're here for our blessing. I mean, that's why we have this ordering this way, through which God can give these good gifts in creation, what we need in our bodies. And and you'll notice that uh, Peter does the same kind of thing in his epistle. I mean, so if you you look at uh, 1 Peter, uh, his first epistle there, and uh, you you see how uh, you turn to like chapter 2, verse 13. Again, it's the same kind of idea where he's starting off with this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of 
foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. And so this is the whole understanding here that before the old way of doing things was in rebellion with the creator. The old way of doing things was hating God and hating others. We were fools. We were foolish. We had the so-called wisdom of the world. But now as sons of God, we have the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit who continues to work with his word in our hearts to give to us the wisdom of God. And of course, Jesus himself is the wisdom of God. But this is that whole context here now in this ordering of society. So you're contrasting these earthly kingdoms with the kingdom that we are in participation with. We are joined as heirs to the kingdom of God, to an eternal kingdom. But yet now we live in this temporary realm, and in the temporary realm, while we are waiting and anticipating the the full manifestation of what we actually have in Jesus, well, we are to work in this life to be of benefit to others. And so you have that ordering in the 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 earthly kingdoms. And so again, at verse 17, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the emperor. I mean, so that's, it's in that context of this, this kind of this earthly uh, kingdom that we are in, where we have been placed, but it's in that same understanding where, where Peter will tell us about how baptism saves. I mean, so he's doing the same kind of thing that our identity is in Christ. But yet we are in the world. We are uh, not to be of the world. We are not to be uh, ruled by the world in our minds and our hearts, if you will, because we are free in in our soul and our spirit. We are freed in our conscience because Christ is the king of our conscience, the one who gives us peace. But it's this earthly realm that now we are interacting with. So if you you drop down later on, uh, we're talking again about the idea of a conscience. And so you, you drop down to 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, let's say, uh, verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. I mean, this is our whole understanding of an apology, like the, uh, uh, the book of Concord, the apology to the Augsburg Confession. It's a defense of what is said uh, to anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, again, this hope is not an abstract hope. It's not just the idea that, well, if we just keep up the hope, just keep the faith, things are bound to get better. No, we're, we're looking to the, the promise of in the end, we know fully everything will be made right and everything will be better. But now we only have glimmers of hope. But that's not where the goal is. The goal is on that eschatological last day when there is no more sin. So that's the hope that we have. We have the hope in Christ. We have the hope in the resurrection of the body, that we are now participants through baptism. We've been united into his body. We have we've been crucified with Christ. We have died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ. So he was put to death for our sins and transgressions, and he was raised for our righteousness. So Peter goes on and he says, yet do this, of course, with gentleness and respect, having a a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So again, we have this understanding that in this life, uh, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. And so in this life, God has placed us in the places where we can be of benefit to our neighbor. 
So this is a new way of life. And in baptism, we have this. And of course, you'll talk about this in the next question, the fourth question about baptism, what's the significance. But it's this new identity that we have. Before, the old way of rebellion is that we are self-serving. And so we're always looking at others and saying, how can others be of benefit to me? <laughs> you know, how can, how can I get the advantage out of this person? But now everything is reversed, and now we are beginning to see things differently, to start to act like children of God and growing up into maturity, maturity, that we would understand that we are to be of benefit to others. And so this is where he then gives us that example of Christ in verse 18. Again, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so again, when we are to rejoice in our suffering now, we are, as we have these trials and tribulations, we are being brought into the participation of the suffering of Christ. But knowing our identity that in baptism, we've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. We have been united to the body of Christ. And so Christ was rejected by the world. And so we should expect to be persecuted and hated by the world as he was hated and still is. But yet we have this connection of his death and resurrection. So that's always going to be our identity. This is this, uh, uh, again, the sacrament of justification, because if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we do not have righteousness before the Father. He rose from the dead to give us his righteousness. And so now he stands as our high priest in the ascension. And so this is where Peter then quickly shifts gears about this whole uh, days of Noah, so in verse 20, now he's talking about God's patience waited in the days of Noah, and it's in that days of Noah that eight people were saved through water. And so eight people were saved through water. But now this is contrast to baptism, which now saves you. So, I mean, we're talking about eight people were saved through the water in the flood. I mean, how, how can water save in the flood? Well, it can't by itself because the water drowns. But yet it's in that water, God's word to Noah, and Noah, of course, being a preacher of righteousness and justification, God's word to Noah gives him the promise of the, the ark and giving him the hope and the the new uh, the the picture of the new creation and the uh, starting all over with the the animals in the ark and the eight who were saved by water. But we have something that's far greater than just the waters uh, of Noah. We have something that this is pointing to. It is baptism, which corresponds to this. Verse twenty one. Uh, it now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. So again, that's that how question. How is it possible? Well, we don't say that water in and of itself can do this. We know water by itself can't do this. It, so baptism is not just plain water. If baptism were just plain water, it would only be a removal of dirt from the body. That's all it would be. But yet God does something wonderful where he takes his creation— and he uses his creation to do these great things. But he ties us to the creation of our bodies. So when we talk about the Christian faith, we're not talking about a generic abstract spirituality, where we're just spiritual people trying to get out of the trap of the body. Instead, God is the one who gives us the promise that this body that he made, this person that he made who consists of both soul and body is redeemed by Christ in his body, so that in the incarnation, God himself takes upon a body to redeem the very body we have. And so when we are baptized, we are baptized with water for the body, 
So the water goes upon the body, but it's that word that's for the benefit of the soul. So the soul can feed upon this understanding of the promise tied to that water that is the water that is applied to the body. But it's all in anticipation of this body that has been washed with water in the word that this same body will be resurrected on the last day because we've been tied to connected, united to the resurrected body of Christ. So this is why we say it now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And then notice he goes on, so you want this good conscience? It's the conscience that, of course, uh, connects us to the Creator. The conscience is that which it uh, measures our own words and thoughts and actions, and we always come short. So all fall short of the glory of God. So the conscience is always kind of measuring, always measuring, and we never measure up, always uh, falling short. But yet we need a different word in the conscience. We need a good word, the word of Jesus, so that we have that gospel message, not the message of the law, which resets our conscience with God's will, but the gospel message, which tells us what God did for us. Because, see, our conscience cannot measure and gauge what another person does. We cannot measure and gauge uh, the, the totality of the works that Jesus did in our behalf. We need a different word that comes to us to, to silence that conscience that is alarmed and terrified because of our own sin and uh, giving to us this good conscience before God based upon the promise. So that having been justified through faith, we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And it's that peace that we we have in the heart for Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the one that comforts our conscience and assures us that for his sake, we now have forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And so he ties this appeal for the good conscience to the resurrection of Christ. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand of God. And so again, it's that connection with Jesus was raised for righteousness, and now he has ascended and he stands as our high priest. He's that one mediator between us and God. And you have this connection that now Jesus stands before the divine throne, and before God, we are justified. So the conscience can now be at peace, knowing that Jesus stands there as our advocate. Uh, he is the righteous one. And so before God, we are justified. We have peace in our conscience. And so Jesus is that advocate in heaven. But then we have the Holy Spirit, who's another advocate, an advocate here on earth with our own conscience, because the Holy Spirit continues to give us that good word, the good news that gives us a good conscience to reassure us that for the sake of Jesus, we are forgiven. Because in our life, all the experience that we have, the external things that happen, the trials and tribulations where the devil is trying to destroy us, the devil is trying to steal our joy, it is the Holy Spirit who is at work to reassure us of that good conscience that we have before God. And so it's tied to baptism because in baptism you have that promise. The promise is that, have you been baptized? Yes. Then you have salvation because baptism now saves. Jesus is the one who has tied you to this. You've called upon the name of the Lord, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the conscience is assured of a work that is done by God, not a work that you do, because the conscience can never, uh, it will never be satisfied with the works that you do, because they can never measure up. But it's a work done by God for you, and this is what gives you this, this good conscience before God. As we look at this, it is the the connections are everywhere. My brain is in many ways here, Pastor, trying to catch up because you look at Titus 
3 and you look at 1 Peter chapter 3 is that it very much so not only connects all the benefits of baptism, but it connects us to that daily vocational holiness that we are to live that you just mentioned. And and it it really connects it together because our conscience um, are the way we are we able to see God, our relationship with God clearly? Are we under, able to understand the what we have or have not done in relation to God appropriately? Our conscience is always going to wonder, have I done enough? And you realize this as a spouse. You realize this as a parent um, every single day. You know, there's things that cling to us where we don't know if I've been a good parent or a good husband or a good spouse or a good neighbor which is why God gives us something as simple as first Peter chapter three, where baptism now saves you because you're like, that's it. And then that's kind of what's happening here. How can that be? I had one pastor friend who was uh, a Presbyterian and he had been part of an evangelical background. And I remember he became a Lutheran. This is not pastor McFadden. And this is another pastor friend of mine. And one time I, I was like, okay, so how do you explain it to somebody? You know, how do you explain this? How, how can this be? And that's how he said it was baptism now saves you. And I was like, okay, but what else? <laughs> yeah, right. And he says, baptism now saves you, you know, amen, basically. And so I think it was just a, a great reminder because it all begins, like you're saying today, the promise. And what does he give with that promise? The the sacrament of justification, which is a, a language I haven't used before, but boy, it's, it's so full of grace as you say it. Baptism now saves you from from that baptism justified by him. We live our lives submitting to rulers, as it says, goes through a whole list of what we were and then shows us who we are, continually reminding us of our identity. Pastor, there's so much that we could kind of pull together. How would you encourage someone today that really has never heard this before about baptism. How can this be? And all the gifts they receive and how that flows into our daily lives. What encouragement do you have for our listeners as they hear this today? Well, I think the encouragement is that instead of using logic and reason apart from the scripture and trying to come to a determination based upon what somebody else has thought before you and then uh, told you to say, taught you to think in a certain way, to go to the scripture and just look at the passages about baptism. I mean, for instance, if you go to Galatians chapter 3, this again is where you see this as a sacrament of justification. In Galatians chapter 3, that's where we're talking about what it means to be justified through faith alone. I mean, this is where we're talking in Galatians 3, where Paul says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So we're going all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. And so notice that what he does is he's talking about the, the Gentiles who's been converted. Because remember, the whole issue there in Galatia is that they're being told that they're not spiritual enough because they haven't been circumcised yet, right? And so we have something better than circumcision. We have baptism. But here, what Paul is trying to address here is that you don't become a child of Abraham by circumcision. Now, that's something from of old. Now, you become a child by Abraham by faith, and we have something greater, which is baptism. So he assures the people who have believed that you have this promise. 
uh, that God's going to justify the Gentiles by faith. Because remember, before with uh, circumcision, that was only for the, the Jews. And now we have something greater. When baptism is, is instituted, you are to go to all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that now this is with the Gentiles too. And so baptism is something that embraces the Jews and the Gentiles, all of humanity. And in that baptism, we have the promise that we are now sons of Abraham, spiritual sons of Abraham. So this is why Paul will say there in Galatians chapter 3, uh, like around uh, verse 8, in uh, what he, uh, he's preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Because this is what he said back in Genesis, that in Abraham all the nations will be blessed. And now you have this fulfillment here in baptism. So in verse 9 he says, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And as Paul continues to progress in this, this understanding of what it means to be justified by faith alone, and we don't need circumcision to tie us back to the Jews, we need baptism. So then he gets down and he talks about in order that we might be justified by faith, and now that faith has come, uh, down at verse 25, we are no longer under a guardian. Why? Verse 26, because in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. So we have the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed and covered in his righteousness. That Again, that's why he rose from the dead. He rose for our righteousness to give this to us as a gift. He took upon our wickedness, our sinfulness upon the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So here you have those who have been baptized have been clothed with Christ, which means there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then of course you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So notice that again, we're talking about this sacrament of baptism as the sacrament of justification. So Paul is tying it directly to that promise. In the Old Testament, the sacrament of the Old Testament of justification was circumcision. And so that circumcision was that, that sign of the covenant. It was an outward act, yes, but it was not a symbolic act. Believe you me, that was a very real act, not symbolic. It was a very real act that happened, but it was that sign of the covenant that you are a participant as a son of Abraham. But when you get to baptism, now it's not exclusive to only the male biological heirs or uh, who are now part of the people of the Jews, but now there's no exclusion. It's all nations. And it's not only males anymore. It's male or female. Uh, it is free or slave. It is Jew or Greek. There's no exclusions. It's a, a man, woman, boy, girl, infant, adult, teenager. There's no exclusions at all. With about two minutes left in our time, how would you summarize the howness, if I can say it that way, the howness of baptism that people will hear today? And once again, encourage our listeners about this, like you said, sacrament of justification and the gifts that he gives through baptism. Well, again, as we started off, this whole discussion of how, it's a philosophical question. How is that possible? I mean, it, you have that question over and over again throughout the scriptures. How is this possible? And you'll see this with miracles. How is this possible? Uh, you know, how can this happen? And so it's, it's not about using the reason or the logic. You have to have the word of God. 
So it's the word of God that gets a, gives to us that certainty, that trustworthiness, because God is true and his word is truth. And so he's the one who speaks that word of truth to us. And what does faith do? Faith believes what is true. That, that's faith believes the promise that God gives, that true promise. And so it's faith tied to the word of God. Reason is always separated apart from the word of God. It's just uh, the words of other people. It's, it's the thinking of the world. It's the philosophical concepts and constructs and kind of uh, mental gymnastics that are, that are made, uh, trying to make sense of things without going to the text of Scripture. So we always want to go back to the text of Scripture. Uh, when I was, uh, at one point I was Roman Catholic, another point I was Southern Baptist, then I was ELCA, and then I became Lutheran. Uh, now I'm, uh, and, and when I was in the Southern Baptist Church, what was amazing is when you're trying to talk about baptism, they would say, well, this is what baptism is, but they wouldn't go to the text of Scripture. So they wouldn't say, well, let's see what Scripture tells us that baptism is. Instead, they would just go to their books or their teachings that, well, we've been taught that baptism is a symbolic act. Okay, well, where does the Scripture say it's a symbolic act? Well, they don't know, because they don't know there's a passage, but they're, they're convinced it's got to be in there somewhere. Well, you want to go back to the text of baptism if you want to talk about baptism. Just like when you want to talk about the pastoral office, you got to go to the text about the pastoral office. If you want to talk about the Lord's Supper, go to the text about the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is how we do things. Well, Pastor, uh, that just reminds us of why we have Concord Matters, not to look at the small catechism or the book of Concord and say, look at that. No, we look at that because it is about the scriptures and you can reference it right away because that is our foundation. That is our hope. I'll found it in Christ. Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, clearly confessing the truth of the gift and benefits and the howness of holy baptism. Pastor Ketchemeyer, thank you for your faithful teaching on Concord Matters. Oh, you are most welcome. I'm your host, Brady Finnern. Thank you for joining us and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand. <laughs>